have a Bible with you, open up to the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 7, returning kind of after the holiday season, back to our verse-by-verse study through this amazing Gospel, the Gospel of John. So we're going to be this morning looking at a part two. I started part one, I believe, in mid-December. The title of the message is The Claims of Christ, John chapter 7, verses 14 to 24. If you have an outline, notice that I've filled out already the majority of it for you because we covered the major heading 1, 2, and 3. And I'm going to review those a little bit, and then we'll spend most of our time this morning on the fourth major heading. But again, the claims of Christ, this is a part 2, John chapter 7. I'll start reading in verse 14, and I'll read all the way down to verse 24. The apostle John writes this. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority." The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment." Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, and we want to know you in all of your glory. Thank you for revealing us yourself through the Bible, the Word of God. Thank you for the master teacher, Jesus Christ, your Son, one with you, who taught us through this passage what it means to know Christ in all of his fullness and not to be distracted with lesser things. I pray that today you would open our ears to hear what you want us to hear, that you would move in our hearts to help us to be focused on the teaching of Christ, and that you would change us from the inside out today to love you more than anything else. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a few weeks back, we talked about how salesmen can oftentimes overpromise and under-deliver. Making claims that cannot be met happens all the time. It could be a biotech CEO that says the company's test can determine various diseases from just a single drop of blood. It could be a marketing executive insisting that he can double his sales from last quarter. It could be a drug rep claiming that his medicine is indeed a guaranteed silver bullet cure for whatever disease you may have. We have to be smart and we have to be discerning when we determine the difference between the claims of those that are true and the claims that people are making that are not true. And marketing and advertising claims bombard us constantly 
And although we often tune them out, we need to be discerning the claims that are being made so that we can make wise decisions. And in many ways, we should be careful discerning the teachings and the claims of Christ. Nobody should just accept anything without considering whether it be true. Now, obviously, as Christians, we come with a great bit of respect and humility when we approach the Bible, but what's going on in this passage is Jesus is making a lot of claims that the Jews are not believing. And so in this text, what we're going to see is that he's claiming all kinds of things. And let's be honest here. Some of Christ's claims might be hard to believe from a human point of view, just from the flesh. I mean, Jesus did make more radical and bodacious claims than any sales rep in the history of the world. Jesus had the courage and the audacity to make claims that had never been made before. Listen to what Jesus claimed. Jesus claimed to have come down from heaven. Jesus claimed to have been sent into the world by his Father. Jesus claimed to be the Savior of the world. Jesus claimed to be the judge of people's eternal destinies. Jesus claimed to be the only source of eternal life. Jesus claimed to be the only way to God, to have the right to be honored on an equal basis with God the Father, to be one with God. He claimed to have power to raise people from the dead. Jesus claimed to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus claimed to be the supreme ruler who will one day return in glory. Jesus claimed to be without sin, to have all authority in heaven and on earth, to have authority to forgive sins, to have authority to answer prayer, to have authority over the Sabbath, to encourage prayers to be made in His name. Jesus claimed to be the bread of life. He claimed to be the light of the world. He claimed to be the door of the sheep. He claimed to be the good shepherd. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life. Jesus claimed to be the life and the truth and the way. Jesus claimed to be the true vine, to be greater than the temple. Jesus claimed to be the anointed one. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus claimed to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He claimed to be the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And Jesus' claims polarized all those who heard him. I mean, when you hear all that, either a man is speaking the truth or he's a liar. And that's what we have to decide as human beings on earth as we consider the claims of Christ, the claims of Christ. Why should we believe this? I mean, these are incredible claims. And when you heard Jesus speak, it was either like fresh water to your thirsty soul or it was clear as mud to your darkened, cold heart. Some believed his claims were too far-fetched, but others wholeheartedly believed that Jesus' claims were indeed true. What about you this morning? Do you believe in the claims of Christ? Do you believe in the person of Jesus who was born to the Virgin Mary? Do you believe that he was fully God and fully man? If you do believe that Jesus really lived, do you believe all that he taught in the New Testament? Do you actually and honestly believe in the claims of Christ? Believing what others say about Jesus will never get you to heaven. Believing that Jesus existed won't do you any good. Believing that Jesus was a good person gets you nowhere. You are not allowed to to claim to be a Christian and only believe a little part about what Jesus said. You must believe in all of Jesus and in all of the claims that, <coughs> sorry, that he made 
about himself or you will never know God. This morning, I'm saying we got to believe the claims of Christ. And in this passage, verses 14 through 24, there are four truths that we're going to see that will help you believe in Christ or not. You ready? Now, we've already done some of this, so I'm going to go through these first three points fairly quickly so we can spend the majority of the remainder of our time on point four. But here's the four truths that can help you determine whether Christ claims were true. Number one, the teaching of Christ was not like any other man. One of the reasons we should believe in Jesus is because he's different. He's not just a regular man. The way he taught was far different and the claims that he made and the way he preached entirely new to the human race. And if you look at verses 14 through 16, we see there that in the middle of the feast, that's the Feast of Booths, Jesus <clears throat> went up into the temple that was there in Jerusalem and he began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but it is his him from him who sent me. So the first thing we saw here was Jesus's teaching in the temple. This was the center of the Judaism of the Jewish religion, right? And he's there like any rabbi doing the teaching that he taught. Then we see that Jesus never studied in any formal school. Verse 15 marks the fact that they were marveling at the fact that this man was teaching like he taught because they know he never grew up in one of their institutions. He didn't have a PhD in theology that was accredited in Jerusalem. All right, So they're thinking, how in the world did this guy who's born in Bethlehem grew up in Nazareth where nothing good comes from, is all of a sudden teaching and become the head teacher, kind of wowing us with the way he connects the Old Testament with what he's saying now in the New Testament. And so they're amazed by this. And so they start asking him what's going on. And we read in verse 16, basically Jesus says his teaching is not his own. They think maybe he's a self-starter to this new part of the Jewish faith or of some other faith. And Jesus is like, hey, this isn't my own stuff. This is what's been going on from the beginning. I'm connecting with Yahweh. I'm connecting with God. I am teaching things that aren't just unique to me or beginning with me or starting with me, but I'm teaching from the Word of God. And I think there's a little takeaway we could get from that. And just a reminder is we ought to be teaching the Word of God. Jesus, if you're teaching something new and people say, I've never heard of that, never heard of that type of theology, you've never heard that ever, it's probably off. Right? What we should be is faithful to the text, preaching the word, expositing the scripture in a way that can connect the dots from the very beginning all the way through the full canon of scripture. And I think part of what Jesus is saying here is simply that his teaching didn't originate with him. It's not his own personal opinion. He never acted outside of the triune God. He was a part of the Trinity, connected with his Father and the Holy Spirit. And I think there's a lot we could learn from that, even though Jesus was divine and we're not part of the Trinity, as pastors, as preachers, as fathers who lead your home in spiritual devotions, you should be teaching your children, your wife, those that you disciple, the Word of God. Jesus always taught in a way that was congruent with an extension of the Scripture. And we ought to be doing the same. We ought to be teaching the Scriptures, not our opinions. The Scriptures, not what's popular. We ought to be standing on the Scriptures and not on our soapboxes. And when it comes to issues like dating, morality, finances, how to best love your neighbor, we ought to be teaching the Scriptures. We ought to be teaching what Jesus taught and point people to the Father and point people to the Word of God. 
in the Word of God then in return points to Christ. And so we're seeing here that one of the claims that Jesus is making kind of throughout the Bible is he is the, 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 the he and the Father are one. And considering whether or not you think that claim is true, just consider the fact how he taught, what he taught, how he connected the scriptures like no one ever did. Jesus taught like no other man. Second truth that will help you discern whether or not his claims are true is number two, the knowledge God longs to give comes through obedience. Let me explain what I mean as you see it there in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Listen, God longs to give you insight. He longs to give you wisdom. He longs to reveal himself to you, but it's more than just you figuring it out in your study. It's also you applying it in your life. And what he's saying is in verse 17, if you're doing the will of God, if you're obeying what you already know scriptures to teach, he's going to give you more. But if you're not obeying what you already know, you'll never really understand it. To say it another way, Jesus reveals himself to those who keep his commandments. This is how Jesus said it in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So he's saying, if you're a true Christian and you're walking in obedience with God, he will reveal himself and manifest himself to you more and more and more. What we're learning here is that if you want to be closer to Jesus, you need spiritual discernment. But discernment in and of itself, just by studying the word of God, is not enough. You also need to be obeying the word of God. Until you put it into practice, it's just knowledge. And when you put it into practice, it becomes wisdom. When you study the Bible, it informs you. When you practice the Bible, it changes you. So it's not just about learning, 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 and never applying. It's about learning application. Learning application, which is another word for obedience, that you're obeying all that Christ says. And as you're obeying him, you're going to learn more about him. I would rather have people at this church obey all they know about the little bit of scripture that they know than to know all of the scripture and not to obey but a part of it. I would rather have people follow what they understand to be true in Scripture than to try to comprehend all of the Bible, but only seek to follow a portion of it. Bottom line, Jesus is saying, if you want real biblical discernment to know if what I'm saying is true or not, then just start obeying and you will know whether my teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. I love what A.W. Pink says about this in his commentary on John, quote, God will not grant light on his word unless we are truly anxious to walk according to that light. If the motive of the investigator be pure, then he will obtain an assurance that the teaching of scripture is of God. That will be far more convincing and conclusive than a hundred logical arguments. So don't just keep trying to figure it out in your mind. Put into practice what God reveals in his word. Start obeying him. The next little subpoint there already filled out for you says the Holy Spirit affirms us as we obey. And if you look at the context of that passage carefully, you'll see it's as you obey the Holy Spirit that he affirms himself to you and bears witness with you that you're his. It's as you obey. In fact, this is all over the Bible. As you see, the next subpoint there says God's word 
promises that if we seek him, we will find him. And so as you're seeking the Lord and obeying him and walking with him, he'll reveal more and more and more and more of himself to you. And so the idea here is that we'll, 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 we, have to, we have to not just learn it cognitively, but put it into action in order for us to have the full understanding and application of God's truth. So I think that's what he's saying there in verse 17 again. If you're doing God's will, then you're going to know whether Christ's teaching is from God or from someone else. And this leads us to our third truth that will help you determine whether or not you believe Christ claims or not. Number three, the self-exaltation of any speaker opposes the humility of Christ. Here's what we're saying. Look at verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Here in verse 18, Jesus is comparing himself with false teachers. Basically, false teachers seek their own honor. And Jesus' listeners are trying to decide whether or not his claims are true. Listen to what Romans 16, 18 says about false teachers. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Or how about Philippians 3 says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. What Jesus is saying, if somebody's tooting their own horn, and if somebody's bringing glory to themselves, automatically you can know that's a false teacher. So Jesus does the opposite of that. Jesus, your next sub-point says, never sought his own glory, which is a little bit surprising because you're saying, wait a second, I thought you said he claimed all this stuff. He claimed to be one with God. What do you mean he didn't seek his own glory? What I mean by that is he never sought his own glory outside of the Father. He never sought his own glory outside of the living word. He never sought his own glory apart from the Spirit's work. And so the opposite of a false teacher who is seeking his own glory is Jesus who said in John 5, verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. I mean, Jesus said again in John 8, 50, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not here for my own glory. I'm here for the Father's glory. I'm here to exalt Him. I'm here to draw attention to Him. I'm here to bring attention to God, the Father. And while Jesus does not seek His own glory, the Father does. Jesus seeks the glory of the Father, and then the Father dotes glory, if you will, upon the Son. It's the Father who glorifies the Son, like in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him, that's Christ, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus brings our attention to the Father, and the Father, in return, glorifies the Son. And so the difference that we're seeing here is that Jesus is legit. He's a legitimate teacher because he's not teaching his own truth in his own way. Rather, he's teaching the Father. He's teaching all about him, and he's not drawing attention. In fact, even at the end of verse 17, notice again, he says, I'm not speaking on my own authority. Again, you would have thought he could have just said, well, I'm God. I'm God in the flesh. I'm speaking on my own authority. No, no. What he means by that is I'm connecting it to the Father. I'm connecting it to the word. The false teachers weren't doing that. And not only were the false teachers not doing that, neither were the Jews. Okay, so forget false teachers for a moment. Let's come right into Judaism. And what's going on is that the Jews were not understanding the word of God correctly. 
they were interpreting it in a different way, which caused them to be false, which is why they didn't understand Christ. And this is where we're getting into now the nitty-gritty, if I can, of our last point, which is really the point of the sermon, which is this, the laws of men never outshine the laws of God. The laws of men, i.e. the Jews, adding to God's word, never outshine the laws of God. Your first blank here, so this is your first blank. If you're taking notes, you can now wake up. So like, okay, we got last week's running start. Now, here we go. Are you ready? You ready? Say, I'm ready. All right, here we go. Attacking the assumption that you know the law and keep it. Here's what's going on right here. Jesus is attacking the assumption that the Jews actually know God's word and are keeping it appropriately. And we see that in verse 19 through 21. Jesus says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? In other words, Jesus is saying, look, you guys are bragging about knowing the law and obeying the law, and you're saying, I'm not obeying the law, but you don't really even know the law because you're actually breaking the law. So he's attacking this assumption that they really know the law and are keeping the law. Remember here in this passage, Jesus was not formally trained. He didn't have a PhD in Hebrew law. He didn't use the Talmud or the Mishnah. And so they assumed that Moses and their way of thinking are right and that Jesus is wrong. And this all begins to center around this idea of how Jesus is breaking the Sabbath in their mind, but he's not really breaking the Sabbath because he never once did something that the Sabbath denied. (coughs) The problem is they added extra things to the Sabbath And they got bent out of shape when Jesus exposed that as legalism. And so what's happening is Jesus is attacking this assumption that you know the law and that you're keeping it. And that's why Jesus says about these Jews over in Mark chapter 7, verse 6, quoting a prophecy from Isaiah. He says to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching, here's the problem, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You see where the problem is? The problem is they're teaching as real doctrine what is really just the commandments of men. That's what he's upset about. You guys are acting like you know the word of God, but you've added to the word of God these commandments of men, and it's causing problems. And because it's causing problems, Jesus is attacking this assumption. It's like Jesus is saying, you guys honor God with lip service, but it's all a show. You seem to have it all together, but you're filled with pride and with evil. Your hearts are far from me. Why? Why is their worship in vain? Because they're teaching the doctrines as commandments of men. The problem is they're legalists. They are preaching this as if it's true and it's not. Thanks, Jonathan. I appreciate that. Excuse me for a minute while I get a sip of this living water. (laughs) Amen. All right. So the problem is, again, they're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so in other words, they've taken God's law, they've tweaked it, they've made it their own law, and they are now paying homage to that. They're saying, hey, we like the Bible, but we got a lot of other stuff we think the Bible should have said, so we're going to add a bunch more in there, and now that's what we're allegiant to. Not just God's Word, but God's Word plus. And so Jesus is accusing them of, on the one hand, wanting to obey the law, but on the other hand, wanting to murder Jesus, which we know is breaking the law. 
So when he says there in verse 19, yet none of you keeps the law, he's starting to hint at the fact, because you guys want to break the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder, but you want to murder me. You're saying you're keeping the law and you're acting all religious, but you're trying to kill me. How is that keeping the law? So he starts to attack them on that issue, but he's also attacked them on the issue of being plain out legalists, that they have added to the law of God. And so Jesus is exposing the fact that the Jews didn't really understand God's law and they really were not keeping God's law. Case in point is if they were really concerned about living a holy life and keeping God's law, then are they really going to kill an innocent person? Now the crowd, not fully aware of what's going on, were like, What's wrong with you, man? Have you gone mad? Are you possessed by a demon? No one's trying to kill you. So it's possible some in the crowd aren't really following, you know, Jesus knew the hearts of the leaders, and maybe the leaders hadn't revealed all of their thoughts to the crowd. So the crowd are a little bit taken back. Who's trying to kill you? Yet we know the leaders were already trying to kill him. That's why Jesus showed up in the middle of the feast instead of at the beginning, because he wanted to throw them off guard and do what Jesus does which is something unpredictable, but it's always teaching the gospel to the hearts of people and calling them to repent and believe in him. And so what's happening here is they're getting really upset at Jesus. And as you follow the flow of this text, they are trying to kill him. They want him out. They think he's broken the law. And so now they hate him. Now listen to me. Be prepared, if you stick with Jesus, to follow a similar course in your life. People are not going to love you because you stand on truth. People are not going to love you when you preach the Bible. People are not going to agree with you in your view of things like homosexuality. For example, affirming homosexuality used to be an option in our country. There were, you know, 10, 20 years ago, you could either kind of like, I think that's right, I don't know if that's right. Now, look at how it's changed. Affirming homosexuality used to be an option, but now affirming homosexuality has become a command from our culture. Not only that, but affirming homosexuality is now celebrated by our culture. Not only that, but if you don't celebrate homosexuality, now you're going to be condemned. And the idea, look how far it's gone in just a few years, it's gone from now, it's not just an option, it's a command, and now it has to be celebrated, and if you don't celebrate it, you're condemned. You're the religious bigot. You're the unloving one. You are the one acting unchristian-like because you're not accepting all things from all people at all times. That's, this is the confusion of people who claim to be religious, but they're fools because they don't really know the God of the Bible because they don't know the Bible. And that's what Jesus is saying to these Jews. You don't really understand. And specifically, what they don't understand is this idea of the Sabbath. And that's why he says in verse 21, I did one work, <clears throat> he says, and you all marvel at it. Now, in the flow of chapter 7, which is in the flow of John, I believe what he's talking about, and all the commentaries pretty much point to this, but what he's talking about is the miracle he did on the Sabbath in John 5 when he healed the man by the pool at Bethesda. You remember? There was an invalid or a lame man that he heals. We preached on this months ago, but it was on the Sabbath. And from that day, they determined they're going to kill Jesus because after he healed the man, he told him to what? Take up your mat and walk or whatever, right? The idea of that kind of stuff that's going on they're, they're like, they're just belligerent. They're like, I can't believe that he would heal the guy on the Sabbath. And he would suggest that he walk somewhere because on the Sabbath is supposed to be a day of rest where you can't walk. Now understand, Jesus never broke any Old Testament law, okay? The, the, the Old Testament does say, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But it never says you can't walk. 
certain distance. All right? That was all added in by the Jews saying, oh, well, you can't walk more than half a mile, and you can't carry this, and you can't do a cooking, and you can't do... I mean, they just are adding and adding and adding and adding. And this is what Jesus is warning them over. It, look, Jesus can implement anything he wants. So just the fact that it's Jesus saying, be healed, should be enough for us to be like, well, I guess that is okay, because that's Jesus, and he's saying, be healed, and he's the Son of God. And what's happening is people are getting bent out of shape over methodology. I mean, here's, here's the takeaway from this text, if I could say it this way. Beware of tradition. Now, tradition can be a great thing. We stand on many solid traditions of the Christian church, and I love tradition in so many ways, but I'm saying this morning, beware of it. Beware of tradition. Beware of the habits of the church. Beware of your own strong preferences. Beware of calling something holy that the Bible doesn't call holy. Be, caught, be careful of being caught up in the way that this has always been done type mentality. And when it comes to doctrine, that's true. We should never want to implement a new doctrine that is not taught in Scripture, but methodology is different. Methodologies can be changed, and they can be adapted. Methodologies can be examined and tweaked. Methodologies can differ from church to church and from family to family. And so many times when it comes to our preferences, we assume that we know what's best and we push for a particular method or a particular practice. And we think that those who don't do it our way are less godly, less biblical, less informed, and just must not love Jesus like we do. For example, one church may choose to borrow money to build a new building, and another church may not. Does not mean one church is more biblical than the other? Nowhere in the Bible does it forbid borrowing money. It may give caution in how to do it wisely, count the cost, but it doesn't say you can't borrow money. One church may sing only hymns. Another church may sing a mixture of hymns or praise choruses or all praise choruses. One church may sing all Christmas songs for the whole month of December. Another church may choose to mix in there other Christ-exalting songs. One church may do away with an Awana program. One church may start an Awana program. One church may choose to wear a coat and tie by the preacher and so many in the audience why another church might be totally casual. One church may use PowerPoint and video while another church may condemn any modern media. One church may have children's and youth ministries and another church may choose to do everything in a family-integrated way. Listen to what I'm saying. You can do whatever you want as a church, but you can't tell every other church and every other family that they're doing it wrong if they're not doing it like you're doing it. Do what you do to the glory of God, and don't tell others they shouldn't be doing what they're doing unless what they're doing is clear sin. Be careful not to exalt your methodology over your theology. Now, I believe that a good theology comes from a, a, that a good methodology does come from a good theology, but methodology is not demanded or denied in Scripture. We get off into arguments about secondary issues, and we begin to be a distraction from the gospel. And here's why. It's because we love what we love. And if we just loved Christ, if we just loved Him, then all of the other preferences wouldn't really matter to you. You'd be like, I don't care what we do. I don't care what we're singing this morning. I don't care what tune it's in. I don't care how loud it is. I don't care what color. It, I don't care what the pastor wears. Because all I care about is Christ. Isn't he more lovely? 
Isn't he more lovely than our stuff and our preferences and our opinions? And what's happening in Judaism is they're just getting upset at Jesus. And they're like, I don't like the way he did that. I don't like what he did on the Sabbath. I'm all bent out of shape. Listen, we have the same legalistic tendencies to spend more time discussing secondary and tertiary issues than we talk about Christ. Wouldn't it be great if every moment of every day it wouldn't be like, oh, I can't believe she wore that, and he did that, and he's he driving that. What is he driving? You know, it'd just be like, no, I just love Jesus, and I love the people who love Jesus, and we need to win the loss, and we need to not be so opinionated. We need to make sure that we understand the law of God correctly and that we're keeping the law of God in the way that he wants us to. We need to be willing to be taught from the Bible and corrected from the Bible. We should welcome input and allow our heart to be shepherded by Scripture. We should be praying for humility and love to keep our focus on the main thing. Don't demand what you want. Be kind with others. Focus on the heart, not on the externals. Worship Christ and not your preferences. And the problem is that the Jews took their eyes off of God. And they took their eyes off of Christ. They never accepted him. They took their eyes off of the Bible, started focusing on other teachings, and they got bent out of shape, and now they're angry at Christ. We also see here, the second blank, we see Jesus, he's continuing to talk with these Jews, and he's going to give an argument. The next blank says, arguing from the lesser to the greater about the Sabbath, verses 22 through 23. Here Jesus says that Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Let me just pause right there for a minute. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. Jesus is stating that while Moses did give the Jews the right of circumcision in the Mosaic law, circumcision originated with the fathers, which is a reference to Abraham in Genesis 17, when God initially told Abraham to do circumcision as a mark of the Abrahamic covenant, promising land, seed, and blessing to Abraham's descendants. Okay? So a little bit later, in Leviticus chapter 12, Moses reiterates the rite of circumcision by saying, on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Here's the question. If the Sabbath is supposed to be so holy, and if the eighth day of the baby boy happens to fall on the Sabbath, should we circumcise them or not? And the answer was, they would circumcise them. So Jesus is saying, huh, if you guys will circumcise somebody on the Sabbath, which seems to be a work, then why can't I heal somebody on the Sabbath? I mean, I healed this lame man, and you're all upset about that, yet you guys will circumcise someone on the Sabbath. So here's his argument. If the law allowed for a work of necessity, would it not also allow for a work of mercy? If the law allowed for circumcision on the Sabbath, surely the law would also allow a lame man to be healed on the Sabbath. It's almost like Jesus is saying, wake up. You guys circumcise on the Sabbath, but you won't let me heal this guy on the Sabbath? Where is that forbidden in Scripture? It's not. So his point is, you guys are legalists. And you're saying I shouldn't be doing things that nowhere in the Bible does it say not do. Besides, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I I am Jesus. He says it another way in Luke 14, 5. Remember when he says, which one of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? So we're supposed to rest on the Sabbath, right? But what if your ox falls into a well on the Sabbath? Are you going to leave him there to the next day? Are you going to get him out? 
you're going to have to get him out. And what's that? That's a work. You're going to have to sweat. I mean, how, does a, how do you get an ox out of a well? Right? What if your kid fell down in the well? And your kid's way down in the bottom of the well. What are you going to be like? Sorry, son, it's the Sabbath. Daddy will be back tomorrow. Hang in there, buddy. You know, you'd be like, you would work to get him out. So I'm just saying, if the law, Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater, if you're going to do these other works on the Sabbath, then doing a greater work of mercy, doing a work of love, doing a work of helping another person is totally allowable, and I would say even encouraged to happen, even if it's on the Sabbath. And so the whole idea here is that Jesus is just trying to expose that these guys are all bent out of shape, and they begin to worship their own law. And so I think that we have to be challenged by this. I tell you that Jesus had placed, uh, Jesus uh, had exposed the fact that the Jews had placed their own law over God's law. They basically wanted it to be about obeying man-made law instead of allowing to see a demonstration of grace. The Jews cared more about their system than they did about learning from the Savior. The Jews were so outwardly focused that they had no inward heart change. The Jews were focused on works. Jesus was focused on worship. Now let me try to bring this home a little bit. If you're here this morning and you believe that any type of alcohol consumption is a sin, if you're here this morning and you believe that beating on the drums is a sin, if you're here this morning and you believe that going to any kind of movie is a sin, if you're here this morning and you believe that dancing is a sin, if you're here this morning and you believe that playing cards is a sin, if you're here this morning and you think anyone who reads Harry Potter is a sinner, if you're here this morning and you believe anyone who gets married while they're still in college with a loan is in sin. Take your eyes off the externals. Place your eyes on the heart and listen closely to the words of Jesus this morning so that you can be biblically balanced and filled with grace. Now listen, I'm all about obeying your mom and dad. And I'm all about being wise. But I'm just saying, let's give a little bit of room for us as a church to function with liberties that honor Christ instead of getting so wrapped up and extra things that aren't in the Bible. Let's get focused back on our doctrine and our practice and not get so focused on methodologies. This is what Jesus is saying in Matthew eleven twenty eight, when the Jews are just trying to justify themselves through law-keeping. Jesus says to them, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's just reminding us it's not rule keeping that gets you to heaven anyway. It's loving Christ and obeying Christ and sticking with the scriptures, not with anything else. One final thought, the last verse of our text, verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Here, our last blank for the sermon, analyzing the authority, analyzing the authority by which you make your judgment. He's cautioning us, be careful how you make these type of decisions. Here, Jesus is telling the Jews that they simply are not making the right judgment because they are judging on appearances or assumptions and not on the truth. They had a lack of theological discernment because of their evil hearts, and they were making superficial judgments based on feeling and emotion and tradition and legalism and not on the Word of God. They can't possibly be making the right judgment 
if they're condemning Jesus Christ, their authority is in their own mind, and it's in their own experience, and it's in, again, their tradition, not the Word of God. We talk about not judging one another. He says, do not judge by appearances. Sometimes people just check out right there. Certainly our culture does. They love to quote Matthew 7, 1, judge not, lest you be judged. How many times have you heard that, right? It's like all Christians, you start to condemn something like homosexuality, which is we love the sinner, hate the sin. We want to lead that person to the gospel, just like we do a fornicator or an adulterer or a drunkard, right? So the the idea is like we just want gospel to permeate and change a person from the inside out. And yet as soon as we say what the Bible says about something is either being honoring to God, glorifying God, or an abomination, the culture says, judge not, lest you be judged. Well, next time somebody says that to you, just say, would you stop judging me? <laughs> I feel like you're judging me right now, right? But the idea behind that judge not lest you be judged in Matthew 7 in context is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talking to a lot of unbelieving Jews, reminding them that you can't judge by a standard without grace. There's always grace and mercy in the judgment of God through the gospel. And in the context, Jesus is saying that if you're a believer... You actually should judge, because this is what he says at the end of verse 24. He says, but judge with the right judgment. He doesn't say don't judge at all. He says, when you judge, judge with the right judgment, and the right judgment is going to be God's word alone, not your preference, and it's also going to have mercy, and it's going to be dripping with grace for the repentant sinner to forgive them and to restore that person in love. That's what He's talking about when he says judge in the right way. So do judge, but judge with the right judgment based on God's word. Make the right judgment based on the righteousness of Christ. Make the right judgment based on the objective truth of the Bible. And so let me ask you this morning, are you making the right judgment based on Scripture? Or are you judging based on your own preferences? Are you making the right judgment based on God's word? Or are you judging in according with appearances. So are you making the right judgment according to the authority of the Bible? Or are you making judgment based on what you think is best? Don't judge on appearances, but judge with the right judgment. I think J.C. Ryle does a great job in his expository thoughts on the gospel, summarizing the whole passage for us. Listen, if you will. He writes this, quote, We are often too ready to be deceived by an appearance of good. We are in danger of rating some men as very good Christians because of a little outward profession of religion and a decent Sunday formality, because in short, they they talk the language of Canaan and wear the garb of pilgrims. We forget that all is not good that appears good, and that daily practice, choice, tastes, habits, conduct, Private character are the true evidence of what a man is. In a word, we forget our Lord saying, judge not according to the appearance. On the flip side of that, he writes this, we are too ready, on the other hand, to be deceived by the appearance of evil. We are in danger of setting down some men as no true Christians because of a few faults or inconsistencies. We must remember that the best of men are but men at their very best, and that they are most eminent saints may be overtaken by temptation, and yet be saints at heart after all. We must not hastily suppose that all is evil where there is an occasional appearance of evil. 
The holiest man may fall sadly for a time, and yet grace within him may finally get a victory. What we're saying is, if you want to judge like Jesus judged, show the law, that's God's word, but show grace, that's the gospel. And when we look at situations that are going on, we want to be careful as a church that we're focusing on the main thing, which is the gospel of Christ. And so let me just ask you these final three questions under that take-home section that will help maybe you have some good conversations as you think through this sermon. Number one, do you see the difference? Do you see the difference in the teachings of Christ versus any other man? When you, got, when you get to talking about these topics of Christian liberties, just go back to Christ and the Word, the living Word, and talk about what He says. And what does the Bible say? Number two, do you see deception? Do you see the deception of thinking you know the Bible when you really don't? For example, when someone again says to me, oh, drinking alcohol is a sin, I'm like, time out. The Bible doesn't say that. So you can't say that. Like that might be your preference or your, you know, quote unquote conviction, but you shouldn't say that drinking alcohol is a sin. So don't be deceived of thinking you know the Bible when you really don't know the Bible. We need to know all the Bible and be perfectly biblically balanced. Number three, do you see the danger of making judgments on appearances instead of on the truth? So many times you see something and in your heart you make a judgment right there. You don't know the details behind what happened, why the decision was made, how it was prayed over, how it was, you know, blood, sweat, and tears went into whatever, but instead you just see something, you're like, oh, I don't like that. You know, well, time out. Don't judge just on appearance. Trust the Lord. Believe all the claims of Christ. Know that what he says in his word is always true. Don't be distracted. Don't be led astray to your legalistic tendencies. Come back to Christ in his word. Let's worship him. Let's exalt him. Let's love one another. Let's, let, let's be patient and kind towards one another as we seek to apply what we've learned this morning. Join me in prayer, if you will. Father, thank you for opportunity to, to dive into John 7 and just to see how Jesus was in many ways rebuking these unbelieving Jews for their legalistic uh, tendencies. And God, we, we, we know that as the church, though we be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, can fall into the same legalistic tendencies to think we know best. And so I pray, God, that you would give us wisdom and discernment to know how to judge in a way that would be with the right judgment, with the right heart, with humility. Yes, according to your word, but filled with mercy and dripping with grace that we would be a church, God, who would be true to your word and loving with other methodologies who may choose to go about something a little differently. God, as long as we be true to Christ, I pray that you would give us much love in our hearts as a church with different people from different backgrounds, with different preferences to look to Jesus. Help us to fall more in love with him each and every day, to see all of his beauty and to see our preferences as very, very distant to the, what, the, what it's all about. It's all about loving you with all of our hearts. God, help us to do that today. Draw us in to a deeper relationship. Help us to do what we do by surrendering to your Holy Spirit at work in us. For your glory, we pray these things.